1: Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas, everybody, a few days late. Thank you for giving me an extra day to work on this episode so I could enjoy some more family time over the actual holiday, even though I celebrated Christmas a bit with my mom as well the previous week. I am finally getting back to normal, but I do have one last Christmas-themed episode for you today. And this is a story that I don't remember learning about in school. Then again, I didn't pay attention very well in history class growing up, which is funny now that I am like a total history buff and history nerd. I just never liked how it was taught to me in class, I guess. Or maybe it was my hearing loss and I couldn't hear anything, so I just really didn't care. But either way, I don't remember learning about the Christmas truce in school, and I think this is a very interesting story. So I wanted to share it with you all today. I think this might be a little bit of a shorter episode, especially with, you know, the lack of conversation with another person. But either way, I thought that this was very fitting to the type of episode that this show needs for Christmas. The Christmas Truce happened during World War One, So let's go back a little bit and talk about how World War I began and how we got to the place of the truce. They say the war officially began in 1914 after the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Austria. Tensions had begun building throughout Europe, especially in the Balkan region of Southeast Europe, for years before his assassination. Now, Franz's political views were shitty, to put it simply. He believed in anti-democracy and thought that politics was a matter for the ruler and the people had to obey. So he was a dictator. He was also anti-Semitic and anti-Hungarian, believing that the Hungarian branch of the army was an unreliable and potentially threatening force to the empire. He advocated for the approach of Serbia, looking for conflict. He and his wife, Sophie, were assassinated in Bosnia on June 28, 1914, by the 19-year-old Gavrilo Princip, a member of Young Bosnia, a group of revolutionaries who wished to end the austro hungarian rule over Bosnia and Herzegovina. I've never heard of that place. Like I said, it was this assassination that they say quote officially kicked off the war, but other factors that went into its beginning was nationalism, imperialism, militarism of imperial Germany and the alliance system. But the war officially began when Austria declared war on Serbia after Franz Ferdinand's assassination, as Austria-Hungary blamed the Serbian government for the attack and hoped to use the incident as justification for settling the question of Serbian nationalism. The war was fought between Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire, which were called the Central Powers, against Great Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Romania, Canada, Japan, and the United States, which were called the Allied Powers. Due to new military technology and trench warfare, World War I saw unprecedented levels of death and carnage. And I'm no war buff, so I don't know a whole lot about trench warfare and when it started. But I kind of figured that was something that was always going on, you know, a way to bury under the ground, to remain unseen and things like that. But in my research, I learned that World War I was when these massive trenches were first being used in warfare. And I find that pretty interesting. But it definitely didn't lead to good living conditions for the soldiers. German troops crossed the border into Belgium on August 4th, 1914 for their first official battle of the war. The Germans attacked the city of Liege to capture the city the following day. They left death and destruction in their wake across Belgium toward France. In the Battle of the Marne, which was fought September 6th through the 9th, French and British forces confronted the German army in northeastern France near Paris. The Allied troops mounted a successful counterattack, driving the Germans back north. This meant the end of the German plans for a quick victory in France, and both sides dug into trenches. And this is what set the scene for the Christmas truce. Now, most of what we know about the events came from actual firsthand accounts in diary entries or letters from the time written to loved ones about the events of the day. By Christmas Eve, some lower ranking British officers had begun ordering their men not to fire unless fired upon without any authorization from above. This policy began known as live and let live. So they were like, you know what, you guys, let's just take a little break from the fighting today. If the Germans decide they want to attack us, you know, we will obviously counterattack and we will start fighting. But it's Christmas Eve. So let's just like stay chill. We're not going to start any shit and go from there. As the morning broke on Christmas Day, German soldiers emerged from their trenches, waving their arms to demonstrate that they had no ill intent. After a little while, after they determined that there was no true danger, they met the Germans halfway in No Man's Land. And No Man's Land is like a strip of land between the two forces that are fighting, where it is kind of like a neutral ground. So they met halfway and essentially decided that they would celebrate Christmas together. A man named Bruce Bairn's father, who was born on my birthday, July 9th, 1887, except for I definitely wasn't born in 1887, he has probably the most accounts of what happened as he wrote about them in his memoirs. And something about Bruce that I love is that he would become a really prominent cartoonist after the war and did a lot of really great artist depictions of what happened that day during the truce. And I'll be sure to post some of them on Instagram. This is what he wrote about leading up to the event. The weather had now become very cold. The dawn of the 24th brought a perfectly still, cold, frosty day. The spirit of Christmas began to permeate us all. We tried to plot ways and means of making the next day, Christmas, different in some way to others. Invitations from one dugout to another for sundry meals were beginning to circulate. Christmas Eve was, in the way of weather, everything that Christmas Eve should be. In nineteen fourteen, one British soldier, Jay Reading, wrote to his wife describing his experience that day, saying, quote. My company happened to be in the firing line on Christmas Eve, and it was my turn to go into a ruined house and remain there until 6.30 on Christmas morning. During the early part of the morning, the Germans started singing and shouting, all in good English. They shouted out, Are you the rifle brigade? Have you a spare bottle? If so, we will come halfway, and you come to us the other half. Later on in the day, they came toward us, and our chaps went out to meet them. I shook hands with some of them, and they gave us cigarettes and cigars. We did not fire that day, and everything was just so quiet, it seemed like a dream. Another British soldier, John Ferguson, recalled it saying, Here we are laughing and chatting to men whom only a few hours before we were trying to kill. Bruce remembers approaching the enemy like this. So we stumbled along, out now our hard, frosted ditch, and scrambling up to the bank above, strode across the field to our next bit of trench on the right. Everyone was listening. They heard music coming from the German side. Presently, in a lull, one of our sergeants repeated the request. Come over here! The soldiers traded cigars and cigarettes, sang Christmas carols, and enjoyed some alcoholic beverages together. Many of the German soldiers knew English from working in Britain before the war. One particular band of troops, the Saxon troops, which are German troops from an area near the Baltic coast, were especially credited in initiating dialogue with the British. Apparently, the troops on both sides found the Saxons amiable and trustworthy as the other war-torn areas containing Saxon troops all over Europe took place in the Christmas truce. And that was one kind of through line, is that a lot of the Saxon troops were the ones to start these truces. They were not, however, prevalent in French-German fighting zones, as Germany had spent 1914 overrunning France, and the animosity toward Germany was so strong with the French, for a good reason. Like I mentioned at the beginning, they were going through France toward Paris in the fighting at the start of the war, so they were like, no, we're not going to make nice. There also wasn't any kind of truce in the Eastern Front, as Russia was still operating under the Julian calendar, and the Russian Orthodox Christmas would not be observed until early January. Some accounts mention German soldiers using candles to light Christmas trees around the trenches, making things look a little bit more holiday like. One German soldier described how a British soldier set up a makeshift barber shop, charging the Germans a couple cigarettes for a haircut. Bruce wrote about this in his memoir, saying, The last I saw of this little affair was a vision of one of my machine gunners, who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civil life, cutting the unnaturally long hair of a docile Bosch, which apparently is a derogatory term for a German soldier, so I don't know if that would be offending anybody now, but if it is, I'm very, very sorry. I'm just quoting what Bruce said. Who was patiently kneeling on the ground whilst the automatic clippers crept up the back of his neck. There are also much sadder accounts of the men helping their enemies collect their many dead. In fact, one of the main activities during the truce was helping the enemy find and bury their dead. One British rifleman recounted in his writings that a German soldier said, Today we have peace. Tomorrow you fight for your country, I fight for mine. Good luck. Bruce summed up the moment like this. Looking back on it all, I wouldn't have missed that unique and weird Christmas day for anything. Fancy all this hate, war, and discomfort on a day like this, I thought to myself. The whole spirit of Christmas seemed to be there, so much so that I remember thinking, this indescribable something in the air, this peace and goodwill feeling surely will have some effect on the situation here today. And I wasn't far wrong. It did around us anyway, and I have always been so glad to think of my luck in, firstly, being actually in the trenches on Christmas Day, and secondly, being on the spot where quite a unique little episode took place. A British soldier named Ernie Williams discussed the truce in an interview, and he remembers a makeshift soccer game coming about. He says, The ball appeared from somewhere. I don't know where. They made up some goals, and one fellow went in goal, and then it was just a general kickabout. I should think there were a couple hundred taking part. German Lieutenant Kurt Zemmich of the 134th Saxon's Infantry, a schoolteacher who spoke both English and German, also described a pickup game of soccer in his diary, which was found discovered in an attic near Leipzig, Germany in 1999. It was written in an outdated form of German shorthand, but it eventually was translated to saying, Eventually the English brought a soccer ball from their trenches, and pretty soon a lively game ensued. How marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. The English officers felt the same way about it. Thus Christmas, the celebration of love, managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. One soldier ran back to his trench and grabbed a camera, taking several photos of the men. The next morning, Bruce described waking up, quote, "...very early and emerged from my dugout into a trench. It was a perfect day, a beautiful cloudless blue sky, the ground hard and white, fading off toward the woods in a thick low-lying mist." It was such a day as is invariably depicted by artists on Christmas cards, the ideal Christmas day of fiction. However, not all of the letters contained the most friendly and heartwarming of stories. This was war, after all. There's one story of a British soldier named Percy Higgins who was relaxing in no man's land with the enemy when a sniper shot him in the head, killing him, which set off more bloodshed. The sergeant who took over for Percy Higgins was set on avenging his death, but he too was killed. There's another count of a German man who scolded his fellow soldiers during the truce, saying, Such a thing should not have happened in wartime. Have you no German sense of honor left? Can you guess who that German soldier may have been? None other than Adolf Hitler. I found a funny little poem on a website called thegirlwhowarfreedom.com that I got a real kick out of, so I'm gonna share it with you now. Every soldier in the trenches liked Christmas a lot, but Hitler, a German in enemy trenches, did not. He hated the Christmas truce. He thought it was rubbish. Those that aren't fighting, he said, ought to be punished. The soldiers smoked, gave gifts, and played soccer, but not Hitler, no, he wouldn't bother. This memory stuck with him. Through his life, it ran, even when the Second World War began. He made sure there was no Christmas truce this second time around. He wanted no merrymaking, but rather just frowns. He kept his men fighting straight on through Christmas. I'm sure his soldiers felt just a bit listless. Hitler hated the Christmas truce, that is a fact. He was a Grinch, and a true one at that. And just as the soldiers suspected, eventually the violence continued in the days after Christmas. But some areas actually held on to the truce until New Year's Day.
0: You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do—
2: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's
0: King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Those higher in command were not pleased with the ceasefires as they were initiated by lower ranking soldiers. But there was some attempt before the war to ensure that there was some sort of peace as well. On December 7th, 1914, Pope Benedict had asked the leaders of the battling nations to hold a truce for Christmas, asking that, quote, the guns may fall silent at least upon the night the angels sang. Their plea was officially ignored. So obviously, these same leaders weren't thrilled when word got back to them about the good times happening over enemy lines. They were absolutely horrified. British General Horace Smith Dorian wrote a confidential memo stating that, quote, the This is only illustrative of the apathetic state we are gradually sinking into. Some accounts hold that the soldiers were punished for fraternization. The British and Germans also put rules in place to ensure that something like this could never happen again. Attempts to revive the truce the following year were pretty much unsuccessful, and there were no ceasefires on the Western Front until the armistice of November 1918. But there were a few more attempted truces within the year of 1915, following the Christmas truce. On Easter Sunday in 1915, a German unit attempted to leave their trenches and celebrate, but the British soldiers opposite weren't game. On the Eastern Front, though, there was a truce on Easter Sunday amongst the Orthodox troops of opposing sides. This inspired the story Holy Night, which was translated to English in 2013. There was another attempt to have a Christmas truce in 1915, but orders by the Allied commanders made sure it didn't happen. A small number of truces happened anyway, but not on as large of a scale as the previous holiday. In the aftermath, the truces weren't reported until a week later, when an unofficial New York Times article was published in the United States. British papers swiftly followed and released firsthand accounts from soldiers in the fields, taking letters written by them to family members. By January 8th, the photos taken on the day of the truce were printed, including pictures of British and German troops mingling and singing between the lines. The tone of the reporting was positive in the U.S. and Britain, but in Germany, they were less enthused, as were the French. In France, press censorship made it so that the only word that spread about the truce was from firsthand accounts told by wounded men in hospitals. Eventually, it became rumor and the French press had to do something about it, so they released a statement that the truce was restricted to the British sector of the front and amounted to little more than exchange of songs before degenerating back into shooting. And though these truces popped up all over the Western Front, it's impossible to know for sure how many people or groups of people participated in the ceasefires as they were small-scale, unauthorized, and haphazard. An article in Time magazine on the 100th anniversary claimed that as many as 100,000 soldiers participated in the truce that day. Today, there's a memorial which stands in England's National Memorial Arboretum commemorating the Christmas truce dedicated to Prince William of England. Why? I don't know. In Midway Village in Rockford, Illinois, they host a reenactment of the Christmas truce. I would love to see that. In 2014, on the 100th anniversary, the English and German national soccer teams staged a friendly match in England in remembrance of the soldiers' impromptu game in 1914. England won 1-0, much like in the war. And that's pretty much the whole story. I told you it was going to be a short one, but I thought that that was such a lovely tale of enemies coming together and making things right on the day of Christmas. It truly does seem almost like this uh, Norman Rockwell version of what they would want wartime Christmas to look like. And that's what I really enjoyed about this. There were some hardships and stuff going on that day, and the war was so deadly and disastrous that it's nice to hear, a story that's as uplifting as this one is i have a lot of really great episodes coming up for you all but if you have anything in particular that you want me to talk about in the coming weeks please 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 email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message me on instagram at angry neighborhood feminist i want to give a big thank you to everyone who reached out to wish me a happy holidays and i wish it back to all of you I hope that you were all happy and safe and felt supported. I know that the holidays can be really, really difficult for people for a number of reasons. And I've struggled with the holidays a lot through my life. And I'm finally starting to feel like I've got a good handle on what my family is to me. And, you know, family being a little bit complicated in my life and having it being such an important part of the holidays that's made it really difficult for me in the last 10 years or so. But I'm so thankful to the Ram family, Max's family, who has given me such an amazing sense of comfort and support during the holidays and all throughout the year. I truly did have an amazing Christmas with the people that I love. And I hope that you all felt the same way in whatever holiday that you were celebrating. And I'm sure you're sick of hearing me remind you all, but if you haven't done so, it would truly mean the world to me for you to leave a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. It's the best way for people who are thinking about giving it a listen, the little push they need to actually hit play. Also, if you haven't rated the show on Spotify, that is also a huge, tremendous help. All right, that's all I have for you today and probably the shortest full-length episode I've ever done. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on.
2: Bye. Nowadays, trends and news cycles change faster than we can blink. But there are some things that withstand the test of time. And if you're looking for a connection to something timeless and maybe also a glimpse of life at a slower pace, I believe everyone can relate to the very human experiences explored in Jane Austen's novels. And that's where I come in. My name is Alison Larkin. I'm a writer, comedian and narrator and host of The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin. I spent a lot of my childhood in the part of England where Jane Austen lived and wrote... And now that I live in the States, nothing gives me a sense of homecoming quite like narrating her books. On this show, you'll listen to award-winning narration. I'll give myself a pat on the back for that. As well as conversations with actors, writers and other fascinating people who all share a passionate love for Jane Austen. So please join me as we embark on a wonderful journey through Jane Austen's work. Be sure to listen and subscribe to The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin, wherever you get your podcasts.